Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. The podcast you're listening to is a little bit of an experiment. We've been releasing Econ Talk on the web every Monday morning for a little over a year. But this podcast is a bonus. It's an in-depth look at the issue of administrative costs under a single-payer healthcare system and how much money might be saved if the U.S. adopted a system more like Canada's. The issue came up in my conversation with Arnold Kling a few weeks ago, and I thought it would be interesting to go into it in more depth. So I interviewed Henry Aaron of the Brookings Institution, and along the way, we also talked about the role of insurance in healthcare reform. It's a little shorter than usual, just over 35 minutes. If the topic isn't of interest to you, we'll have our regular Monday release in a few days, a full-length conversation with Cass Sunstein about worst-case scenarios, dealing with low-probability, catastrophic events. And if you like the idea of a bonus, or extra podcast, particularly one that goes into more detail on a particular issue like this one, please let me know via email, mail at econtalk.org. Thanks. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Arnold Kling, and we talked about the economics of healthcare. One of the issues that came up is the high cost of the U.S. system relative to other countries and how little those extra expenditures appear to have increased life expectancy. In an earlier podcast, Robin Hansen and I discussed the same issue. There are a number of possible explanations why expenditures may not lead to longer life. Perhaps the effects haven't been measured correctly. Perhaps Americans spend a lot more in health care than other nations and in return receive a higher quality of life. But one response to the high level of U.S. spending and the apparent small return is to reorganize the U.S. system with an eye toward eliminating wasteful expenditures. One popular proposal is to go to what is usually called a single-payer system, where that single-payer is the U.S. government. Instead of having all these different insurance companies covering health care costs, replace them all with taxpayer-funded coverage. One potential virtue of this system is to simplify paperwork that many doctors and hospitals do now. Now, there'd be many costs and benefits from such change. One benefit might indeed be lower costs from administrative compliance with the numerous private insurance companies dotting the health insurance landscape today. But Arnold Kling dismissed that argument, saying that the administrative costs are relatively small. He argued that the reason we spend more in the U.S. relative to single-payer systems outside the U.S. is simply because we provide a lot more services. Hoping to keep those services and save money via efficiencies of a single provider is a fantasy. I then blogged on the issue at my blog, Cafe Hayek, and one commenter there, Ed, cited a New England Journal of Medicine article that claimed that administrative costs in the U.S. are not small at all. They're large, and they're large relative to Canada, for example, a single-payer system. That article by Steffi Woolhandler, Terry Campbell, and David Himmelstein argued that administrative costs in the U.S. are not small. They're huge. They found that the U.S. spent $294 billion on administration in 1999, actually uh, $294.3 billion. I love that point three. It makes it sound so precise. Uh, that's three times the per capita spending of Canada. By moving to a single-payer system akin to Canada's According to these authors, America could save $209 billion. All that's still only a small proportion of total health care expenditures in 1999, which are about a trillion, 
$209 billion is a sizable saving. The question, though, is, is it an accurate measure? Is that savings measure either the total expenditure on administrative costs of 294.3 or the potential savings of $209 billion? Are those accurate numbers? One of the issues we've been talking about here at EconTalk is the difficulty of accurate measurement and accurate analysis. So I thought it might be of interest to look a little more closely at this issue of administrative costs, see how reliable the $209 billion of potential savings is if the U.S. moved to a single-payer system like Canada's. Would we save $209 billion from greater efficiency? I think it's a nice example of how elusive the truth can be in these kinds of policy discussions. My guest today to discuss these issues is Henry Aaron, a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution who has written extensively on the topic of health care and who has written a brief critique of the Wolfhandler, Campbell, and Himmelstein paper, which, by the way, both the original article and uh, your uh, critique appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, which most of us don't have access to, and I thought it would be nice to get our listeners exposed to some of these um, economic issues that are so related to the public policy concerns that, that are so topical. Henry, welcome to EconTalk. Glad to be with you. So first off, uh, what's your general perspective on this whole issue of administrative costs and potential uh, savings? Uh, my general uh, slant is that we have an extraordinarily uh, complex um, set of arrangements. I don't think uh, using the word system is appropriate for the arrangements we have for paying health care for health care in the United States. Um, there's very little standardization from one health care plan to another. That means that physicians, offices, and hospitals have to be prepared to handle all kinds of different billing forms. Um, we bill for individual services, which means that uh, uh, records have to be kept by uh, both by all providers uh, so that they can justify their bills. Uh, and that results in uh, a system that is very expensive uh, and very complicated um, and I think uh, costs more for administration uh, than any kind of social benefit we get from it. At the same time, we're underspending on uh, aspects of administration uh, that some other countries are currently investing in. Specifically, uh, we don't uh, keep very good records of what works and what doesn't. A number of other nations uh, have established agencies uh, that try to evaluate uh, just uh, what new technologies are worth, uh, what they cost in order to achieve improvements in health outcomes, and how they stand up compared to uh, currently available treatments. Uh, we have, uh, on a number of occasions, set up such organizations, uh, but their lifetimes have been short and uh, inglorious uh, because um, they did what they were supposed to do. Namely, on occasion, they would come uh, up with findings that particular new medical technologies uh, weren't really worth what they cost, and uh, that then led to political backlash that uh, caused these agencies either to be uh, terminated or, or to have their uh, scope of authority 
uh, severely limited. We need to spend more money on that kind of administration, which is a post-audit of uh, what the healthcare sector is doing. And we could, uh, if we had a more streamlined system, spend a lot less uh, on uh, arranging payments for specific services. Before we get into the details of the uh, the Canadian-U.S. comparison, which which I do want to focus on, I, I want to stick with this point you've just made about um, what might be called efficacy or effectiveness. Uh, we had a podcast uh, recently with Ian Ayers, who argued precisely for this kind of improvement over various rules of thumb that doctors may be using now. And he made the case that doctors are, are very ill-informed often about effectiveness. Um, I want to ask you two things about that before we get to U.S. and Canada. One is, um, is it really so straightforward? Uh, isn't it remarkable how often uh, l- received wisdom about health care gets reversed by the latest study? I'm uh, just thinking today, right now about the obesity findings that came out from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, that uh, argued that despite previous arguments that obesity was a killer, it now actually is either neutral or maybe a lifesaver if you're a little bit overweight. Do you think we can, uh, given the complexity of the human body and the the complexity of the data that would have inevitably be involved, can we get reliable estimates of what's effective and what isn't? Well, let me uh, be a little uh, technical for a second. Obesity is bad for you. Being slightly overweight is not. That's the current. Uh, obesity is way overweight. Um, but um, I think what we can do is not necessarily get complete accuracy, but we can get uh, a better guide than uh, current practice, which, as you said, frequently follows rules of thumb. Um, a better guide than we now have. There's a group up at Dartmouth University under the, it was set up by a physician, John Wenberg, many years ago. Uh, Wenberg uh, observed that across small areas uh, in the United States, there was an enormous variation in the frequency with which various medical procedures were used. Uh, out of that uh, that finding uh, has emerged something called, uh, I think it's the called the Dartmouth Medical Atlas, or some, I may not have the title just right. Uh, but what it does is um, a report uh, on the frequency with which uh, medical procedures of various kinds uh, are used uh, by uh, state and by uh, counties, uh, basically Medicare service areas. Uh, for some procedures, uh, the differences are relatively small and you'll be struck by what relatively small means, maybe two-to-one differences. But for some medical procedures, the differences across these areas are eight, nine, and ten-to-one. Uh, they can't both be right at the extremes on that distribution. Uh, there's been additional research which has found that at least for certain conditions, um, medical outcomes are not better where... Um, more procedures are used. The standout example um, is in the treatment of coronary disease, where very high rates of coronary bypass surgery and angioplasty don't necessarily lead to better health outcomes. Um, what really is 
very, very important in the treatment of heart disease is that people get beta blockers uh, after a heart attack and are put on aspirin, neither of which is very expensive. Uh, And not all doctors do that. So what we have is enormous variations in the use of procedures um, that cannot conceivably be justified by variations in epidemiology and some highly suggestive evidence that uh, doing more isn't necessarily doing better. Yeah, and that, that's related to this, of course, the, the issue we're, that we started talking about uh, over here and, and elsewhere, which is uh, what are we getting for our money? I, I want to put that to the side now, and although, although I think the, the issue of information is very important, I think the, the key question there is who, who should use that information, who should have access to that information. And personally, I'd like to see more information provided to uh, more folks in, in the decision-making, uh, the only thing I would worry about would be a top-down decision about what, what to do uh, when rather than having that uh, be more uh, diverse. I think uh, the power of information uh, here could be very great. Um, if an insurance company today says, we don't want to pay for X in this particular, uh, given this particular set of, of patient characteristics, um, they're in a weak position uh, if there's solid evidence uh, supporting that position, uh, then uh, it's a very different story, and patients will react very differently. Absolutely. Right now, uh, if the doctor says, do it, the patient's reaction is, well, yes. Sure. Um, information could improve things greatly. Yeah, no, I agree, and, I, and I, personally, I'd like to see patients uh, be a little more proactive. We don't have the incentives right now for that as much as I think we, we could. Um, But let's turn to the U.S.-Canada administrative cost issue. Uh, So the study that was done in the New England Journal of Medicine found that by moving to a single-payer system, we could, in the United States, reduce total expenditures on administrative costs from $294.3 billion to a much lower number, saving $209 billion. Um, Your comment immediately pointed out very quickly an error they made in their estimation. Uh, What was that error that was – made their estimate off by $50 billion. Well, uh, it's a question of relative wage rates uh, across the uh, two countries. Um, the main point of, of my article, though, uh, or of my, uh, it was an editorial, uh, the, the main point was that comparing uh, administrative costs across uh, systems uh, is very, very, very tricky. Um, there are a lot of estimates, and the data are seriously incomplete. Um, Will Handler and Himmelstein have been writing articles similar to this one uh, for a very long time. Um, uh, they have been arguing on a policy basis that the United States should move to a single-payer system. Um, and have uh, suggested that the savings from uh, streamlining of administration under a single-payer system would be sufficient to pay for the additional services that would likely be uh, provided under such a system to those who are currently uninsured. Um, I actually don't want to get into an argument about the qualitative issue. Uh, I do believe that the U.S. Uh, system or set of arrangements for paying for health care is ridiculously uh, convoluted and needlessly expensive. 
the point of my comment uh, in the New England Journal was that uh, there were reasons to believe that their estimate was too high. Uh, and I only focused on one in, uh, in, in focusing on relative wage rates. Uh, there are a variety of reasons why it's probably too high. Let's start uh, with start with the wage rate issue. Just explain that because that's just a nice, simple example of how what seems to be an innocuous assumption was actually somewhat important. Well, uh, the uh, basic point here is that uh, in uh, Canada at that time, um, this is 1999. The, yeah, the Canadian dollar was worth about. Uh, uh, 75 or 80 cents compared to the U.S. Uh, dollar. Now it's worth more. Um, and for that reason, uh, one, uh, it, it was important to recognize that one of the reasons they spent less was that they were paying uh, less for, um, uh, for administration uh, for personnel for than, than we are, are paying here in the United States. Uh, the baseline also, there's another point, the baseline for estimating what a single-payer system would cost uh, is something uh, is modeled on the, uh, on the Medicare system. Uh, and there are a variety of ways in which the U.S. Medicare system generates administrative costs. They're not included uh, in, uh, the pub- in public spending on Medicare. So, for example... Uh and I, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, not having uh, read uh, anything other than the abstract of the original paper. Um, complying with U.S. government health insurance, that is Medicare and Medicaid, uh, obviously imposes costs on health care providers, doctors, uh, hospitals, doctor's offices, hospitals, etc., did they? Is that included in that? I assume that's included in their 294. Yeah, I think it is. But uh, let me give an example of one that isn't. Uh, Medicare is paid for by uh, payroll taxes. Uh, collecting payroll taxes costs money. Sure, and has distortionary effects on uh, work effort potentially. Although the magnitude of that is often hard to, to estimate. Yes, exactly. But, but my impression is that uh, sort of the irony in this debate. My impression from my doctor friends is that uh, medi- you know, Medicare and Medicaid is not a paperwork paradise, uh, quite the opposite. While there is this terrible complexity, I don't know if it's terrible, but it's a realistic, it's a fact, this incredible complexity of the private insurance system, it's not as if the, uh, you can comply with Medicare and Medicaid on a postcard. So I assume there are a lot of costs involved in the current system that are due to the uh, current government role in health care, and if we move to a, a larger role for that, some of those savings wouldn't materialize. Uh, that's right, uh, but um, the single-payer option that um, those who advocate single-payer uh, support would actually achieve some economies for providers relative to Medicare. Under Medicare, for still about 85% of enrollees, uh, you're, you're paying individual bills for defined services. Uh, or you're paying for a hospital admission. Under many single-payer systems, and indeed under many systems that are involve multiple payers but still have um, uh, a relatively small number of them, hospitals are budgeted. They receive flat sums. Then the hospital administrators 
who may, frequently are nonprofit or private, uh, they're in the private sector, they're not government employees in most countries, uh, have the job of allocating the budgets that they receive uh, to deliver care uh, to as many people and in the best way they can. But they're not in the business of having to bill anybody for each individual service, and that achieves can achieve very significant savings. It's also a question of whether they underestimate the savings. Um, you know, we talked about how the uh, their estimates exclude any uh, collection costs or distortions due to payroll tax funding of of government provided government funded health care. But they also exclude again. This is just my reading of their summary. Uh, they exclude health insurance company personnel. Uh, that is the fact that under a the current system in the United States, there's a lot of health insurance companies employing lots of people. If we had a single-payer system, government uh, employment would expand, but it might not expand as much as health care contracts and uh, health insurance, private, private health insurance employment contracts, and those would be additional savings they did not account for. I think they, um, they count insurance loading charges, which should encompass uh, that. Um, the... Um if you catch them out in underestimating administrative costs, you will be the have achieved something <laughs> that nobody else has yet done. Um, let me give a uh, a quote from your editorial uh, uh, that I think is a takes us in a slightly different direction. That we we did start in this direction, but I want you to expand on it. You said, "quote Although differences between U.S. and Canadian spending on healthcare administration are probably smaller than Will Handler and colleagues suggest, they may be large. But so what? The most important question is what these differences should tell policymakers. I believe the answer is not much. End of quote. Why do you say that? Well, the reason is uh, the most fundamental reason, in my opinion, is that every nation uh, that is considering uh, reforming its healthcare system inevitably has to start from where they are. Um, that is to say, uh, if we adopt uh, some form of uh, uh, modifications in our healthcare financing system, uh, it's going to take the form of gradual evolution from current arrangements. And that means that uh, if the administrative costs are modified, um, those modifications are going to occur gradually over a long period of time. Uh, and uh, we are going to have, uh, we are not going to put the insurance industry instantly out of business. Uh, any uh, changes in the role that they play uh, are going to be of an evolutionary nature. Meanwhile, that's going to occur. Those changes will occur not over months or even a small number of years, but probably over a couple of decades. Um, real healthcare spending goes up uh, about five percent real uh, a year, um, and that means that we double healthcare spending uh, about every fifteen years or a little less. Uh, so what we're going to have are ch gradual changes in the amount we spend on administration uh, against the background of a very ri rapidly rising level of total health care spending. Uh, yes, there is, I think, a potential for significant saving, 
down the road, given the pace of advance of medical technology, uh, we're going to be spending a great deal more on health care. And I think uh, somebody who is doing a retrospective study in 15 or 20 years, even if we move uh, to a quite different system, is going to have a hard time sorting out uh, the savings that were actually achieved uh, from uh, and it'll end up being a small percentage of the change in spending that actually occurs. Well, let me raise a um, – it's an excellent point um, – raise a different issue. Uh, as an economist, the, the, ma- the mantra of cutting costs for cost's sake seems bizarre. Uh, you know, Focusing on total expenditures, yeah. focusing on costs, is really not the economist's uh, normal way of thinking. Another commenter at Cafe Hayek, Charlie Quidnunk, pointed out, quote, if profits and administrative costs are so terrible, why stop at eliminating them in the healthcare industry? Why not get rid of those pesky elements in other industries? How about creating a single provider information technology industry? Think about how much better computers would be without all that complex and expensive competition between companies or single provider automobile industry or single provider food companies. Why not have the government decide what a wholesome and nutritious meal should look like and eliminate all that expensive experimentation in fancy restaurants? Close quote. It's being somewhat uh, somewhat of a reductio ad absurdum, but I think it makes a good point, which is that in most areas of competition in the private sector, we look at overhead, administrative costs, advertising, uh, distribution. Uh, Some people point to them as wasteful, but we understand that those are often, almost always, the inevitable consequence of a competitive system that leads to lots of innovation. Uh, Yet in healthcare, that doesn't seem to perhaps be the case, uh, at least in the highly regulated parts. In the the unregulated part of healthcare surgery that that I like to point to, given my love of competition, uh, LASIK surgery, we see lots of improvements in quality and cost and consumers benefit. We don't see that elsewhere. So my question is this, long introduction, sorry. Question is this, when you look at that crazy quilt, that hodgepodge of, of insurance compliance, that non-standardized uh, set of, of forms and, and regulations that uh, and rules that private doctors' offices and hospitals have to grapple with uh, from the private insurance industry, why isn't there more standardization? Are there barriers to competition between health insurance companies across state lines, for example, that have created part of that problem or maybe most of it? Well, uh, as far as the non-standardization in uh, billing, which is, uh, has bedeviled physicians and hospitals for a very long time, uh, I confess I don't really understand why um, it has persisted other than that uh, no single entity has a very strong incentive to be the one that says, okay, we'll give up our system and adopt yours. Uh, And consequently, each uh, of the insurers has, uh, at least until recently, uh, has had uh, their own forms and their own procedures, and uh, uh, therefore physicians and hospitals have had to go through a variety of different hoops. Uh, the big difference, I think, um, between healthcare and all the other industries that uh, gentleman mentioned is that this is the one industry in which the goal of policy, both private and public, really, uh, is to protect individuals uh, from re- financial ruination 
in the event of serious illness. Uh, that's called health insurance. Uh, we're not insured for computers or food or automobiles or anything else. Uh, every developed nation in the world uh, it has a system uh, in which uh, virtually everybody uh, has that sort of financial protection. Once you're into that world, you have, by definition, short-circuited out the price mechanisms that operate so uh, beautifully uh, in most of uh, private economies. Uh, and therefore, you're driven to some form of second-best, third-best uh, method of, um, of limiting spending. Yeah. And in this case... Uh, you have very weak incentives for um, uh, uh, for uniformity. Uh, there are uh, there is a role for uh, the public sector, as we've recognized, in establishing uniformity where uniformity is efficient. Um, we do so in telecommunications. We do so uh, in uh, certain forms of, uh, forms of public transportation. Uh, there used to be, in the case of railroads, we established standard gauges yeah. and so on. Uh, so th- what is missing here, I think, is a sensible um, involvement uh, by the public sector that could help uh, simplify these uh, uh, these billing arrangements uh, that are a characteristic of the current system. What? There's one other point. Could I just yeah, make sure. one other yeah. point? Uh, we're focusing now on cost. Uh, there's another thing which is rather important in the case of health care, and that is the quality of health care. Uh, I'm going to put out this fact, which uh, uh, is, is something that we all have to come to terms with. Um, very, very careful recent studies have found that um, during your, a random visit to a physician or a random uh, uh, hospital stay, on the average, Americans receive about 55% of the recommended care for the condition that they have, barely more than half. Uh, that startling number is almost the same whether you're rich or poor, black or white, male or female, old or young. There is one group in the United States for which the percentage of recommended care is significantly higher. And those are patients of the Veterans Health Administration. If you look at the arrangements, the organization of the Veterans Health Administration, uh, it is the one example in the United States that really looks like the British National Health Service. It's a government-run organization. It used to be a total disaster. Uh, what happened over about the last 15 years is that Congress improved incentives uh, and gave administrators in that system uh, more flexibility than they had previously enjoyed, and the system was revolutionized. Uh, and right now, one can make the case it's the most cost-effective system of health delivery uh, within the borders of the 50 United States. Well, that's a very provocative example, and I, I'll, uh, when we're done, I'm gonna, I'll ask you to email me uh, something we can post to read more about that. I, okay. I'm a little bit of a skeptic. I'm a skeptic of the 55%. I can tell you um, one source that you might take a look at, uh-huh. uh, an article by Adam Oliver. Mm-hmm called the Veterans Health Administration, 
an American success story, question mark, which appeared in the Millbank Quarterly, which is a health quarterly, comes out, uh, uh, has been published for a long time. Volume 85, number 1, 2007 is the year, pages 5 to 35. Okay. Well, we'll you can it. probably find that on the web. Okay. Well, and if we can, and if it's publicly uh, accessible, we'll, we'll put a link up to that. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, though, and challenge you on it, because I, I, I have a different perspective. You said that the, one of the reasons that there's so little uh, administrative efficacy in, in the healthcare area is because it's so insurance-dominated. Uh, but we do have insurance for some of the items you mentioned, uh, homes, autos, to protect us from financial ruin. Catastrophic insurance, which is real insurance, is not the aspect of our system that, that jumps out at you. What jumps out at you at the, in the current system is how much that's covered that isn't catastrophic and financially uh, destructive, things that are covered that would not be covered under a private insurance system. Of course, we do subsidize the private insurance system yeah. through the uh, deductibility sure. of, of employer-provided health care, which I think is a mistake. Mm-hmm. But what, what's interesting, and we'll close with this, is that, as you point out, almost every country does something like this. They create a security uh, blanket for their citizens rather than what we would normally call insurance uh, for catastrophic financial ruin. Uh, Robin Hansen, in a previous podcast, gave a very uh, evolutionary uh, of and fascinating argument. It's not uh, persuasive to me, but it sure made me think about it, and I encourage our listeners to turn to that. But what I would mention to you and to get your reaction is that, true, it's internationally common, but it wasn't always thus. Uh, as we pointed out earlier in the Arnold Kling podcast, uh, a mere 50 years ago, Americans paid more than half of every health care dollar out of pocket. We made a deliberate or undeliberate, I don't know, move in the in the opposite direction, where that number is now closer to 10 to 15 cents per dollar spent as coming from the consumer. So I want to, one, I'll, I'll let you react to that comment, and two, I want to close with your ideas on where which direction you'd like to see us move. As you wisely pointed out a few minutes ago, uh, nirvana fantasies about the ideal healthcare system, whether they're uh, the wool handler and colleagues kind of a, of a single-payer system or mine, which is a much more privatized system, are not realistic in the short run. Uh, realistically, we will move incrementally. If you were health care czar uh, with some political restraints of realism, what direction would you move? Well, let me start with the um, cost-sharing uh, point that you just made. That happens to be exactly the, the point that one of my colleagues here at Brookings, Jason Furman, made in a paper that uh, was recently released through what we're calling the Hamilton Project here. He points out that the percentage of health care spending paid for out-of-pocket in the United States not only has fallen greatly, but now is lower than that in most other developed nations. Uh, although they have complete coverage of major expenses, total cost sharing is actually larger mm-hmm. uh, in many other countries than here. Um, if you're interested in that, uh, you, one can find yeah, his we'll article we'll on the Brookings website under the Hamilton Project, F-U-R-M-A-N, yep. Jason is the first name. He's the director, and it came out last summer. Now, uh, if I were czar... Uh, I've, uh, I, could, I consider myself a political liberal, but on this subject, 
I have been working jointly uh, with Stuart Butler at the Heritage Foundation, who is very definitely not a liberal. He's a very strong conservative. Um, because we have the same perspective on how best to move ahead uh, to reform the U.S. health care system. Uh, we both recognize that uh, there is an ideological division in the United States. No single approach commands majority support. Uh, that and a number of other factors have frustrated efforts to, uh, for national reform for at least 75 or 80 years. Uh, and we think, uh, notwithstanding the um, sense that uh, maybe now uh, the time has come, uh, we're doubtful. Yeah, that feeling comes along about every four years and it passes. <laughs> well, actually, the, uh, I likened it, uh, as did a fellow at AEI, to periodical cicadas, uh, which uh -huh. have a somewhat lower <laughs> frequency, but uh, the, in both cases it occurred to us that a lot of noise, not much to show for it, and then things go underground. And, it's, <laughs> and lots uh, to sweep uh, up uh, after they're done, actually. Lots yes. of husks. But so um, both Stuart and I have uh, urged that... Um, what the federal government should do is encourage states to move ahead in any of a very uh, wide range of possible approaches, including favored plans of conservatives and liberals alike. Um, Massachusetts did so on its own um, yeah. uh, under uh, Governor Romney with a Democratic legislature, and um, that was the key for us. Uh, we thought that it was important that this approach be bipartisan in character, both at its inception at the national level um, and uh, that uh, the national approach or the national encouragement countenance actions that were very different in different states so we can find out what works best and maybe um, uh, make some progress in that way. The result uh, so far is that there are three bills, each uh, with bipartisan um, sponsorship uh, and bipartisan co-sponsorship, two in the Senate, one in the House. Uh, the one in the House has about uh, 70 co-sponsors equally divided between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I think that there's a lot we could do uh, if the states uh, were encouraged to move ahead to extend coverage in different ways. Um, and uh, if they do so, uh, we'll learn something, and I think it would change the national debate. Well, I'm certainly uh, pleased to say I think that's a great idea. Uh, experimentation and more information on what works and doesn't work would certainly uh, be an improvement, a step uh, that's plausible, realistic, and, and might actually help us make better decisions. My, my guest today has been Henry Aaron, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.